Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, why black and tans was trending in 2020 and what's next for state commemorations. We are less than a fortnight into this year and we're already on the brink of an election in Ireland. The world has already seen a major international conflict and just across the water, members of the British monarchy have quit their jobs. However, none of these stories has captured the public's attention quite like the state event planned for Dublin Castle on the 17th of January to commemorate members of the RIC and DMP. Here at the Journal.ie, it has been our most read content of the year, along with our coverage of the sad death of RT broadcaster Marion Finucane. So with all that publicity and more and more high profile politicians weighing in, the commemoration of the Royal Irish Constabulary and the Dublin Metropolitan Police was eventually cancelled after days of public consternation and conversation. So it's obviously been a fast moving story. There's been a lot of probably what you'd call anger um, a lot of hot takes and as always at the explainer we are going to take a deep breath and provide you with the facts the history and the expertise you need to follow this story and to do just that i'm joined in studio by our executive producer christine bowen historian and ucd lecturer in gender studies dr mary mcauliffe who actually wrote a fantastic piece for us on this on monday so you can check that out after you listen to the podcast and Yunan O'Halpin, a member of the expert advisory group, which was set up to help the government plan the decade of centenaries from 2012 to 2023. He is also a professor of contemporary Irish history in Trinity College, Dublin. Christine, I'm going to kick things off with you, because as I said there, the decade of centenaries um, started in 2012. It has all pretty much gone to plan um, in that there hasn't been a huge amount of controversy. Um, so can we get a timeline of what actually happened in this instance? On the 1st of January, the Irish Times ran an article about a commemoration, which was due to be taking place on the 17th of January in Dublin Castle, to remember the Royal Irish Constabulary, the RIC, and the Dublin Metropolitan Police. And this was the first time that this commemoration had been mentioned in the media. Uh, there weren't a huge amount of details available. We know a few things about it, though. Um, it was part of the state programme to mark the Decade of Centenaries, which is the big programme of commemorations for significant moments in Irish history that took place between 1912 and about 1923. So basically things that shaped the country before and immediately after independence. Um, we know that it was a ceremony specifically for the, peop- the families of people who had served in the RIC. Uh, the ceremony itself was going to consist of speeches from two speakers, the Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, and Garda Commissioner Drew Harris. And we know that as well as the families, there are going to be some dignitaries from around the country who had been invited too. What marked it out for particular attention? Well, it was unusual because it would have been the very first time that the state would have commemorated specifically these policemen. So there have been other events to mark, say, Olgar, the RIC and DMP men who died while serving, for example. But this would have been the first time that the state would have held a service for the families of RIC and DMP policemen. And it's just such a sensitive issue. Um, politicians have generally stayed away from these services and not had any state involvement just because of the sensitivity, even now, even still, 100 years later, because of the role of these police forces and what they did to stop people who were fighting for Irish independence. So if we got that Irish Times article on the 1st of January, like what kicked it off? Who kicked it off? So there was some chatter about the Irish Times article on Twitter on the 1st of January, but it became a huge thing on Twitter the next day, January the 2nd. And over the days after that, there have been literally thousands of tweets about the commemoration, many of them using the hashtag Black and Tans. And just to be clear, the commemoration wasn't to mark members of the Black and Tans or the Auxiliaries. It was solely to mark members of the RIC and the DMP. 
But history is complicated. History is messy. And there is a link between the Black and Tans and the RIC, which is why we have this podcast <laughs> episode. So the tweets covered a range of sentiments. Um, generally, they were negative or sceptical about the commemoration. And the main issues that people had um, were that the RIC was being commemorated at all. Uh, but other issues were that it was the first public commemoration of 2020, uh, that it, there needed to be more of a discussion around the reasons for the commemoration, uh, that there were better ways to mark the RIC's role in history rather than a state ceremony. So and this wasn't just confined to Twitter, it spread out into the real world. So at the weekend, the Mayor of Clare said that he wouldn't attend the event. Uh, the Lord Mayor of Dublin said the same. And that's kind of when it became inevitable that the event was going to be cancelled. Um, on Tuesday, which was the 7th of January, um, the journal broke the story about Dermot Ferreter, um, who's a member of the expert advisory group for the decade of centenary, saying that the group hadn't recommended the commemoration event. Um, Ferreter said that the group had said there could be a specific initiative. He said what they'd been thinking of was an academic event or something on those lines instead. So it was later that evening that the government announced that it was cancelling the event and instead planning or hoping to have an alternative commemoration in the months ahead instead. I think one of the things we need to get into straight away, and this is why we have Mary and, and Union here as well, um, when we talk about the RIC, just like baldly, what were, like what were the RIC? So the RIC were set up by the British in 1836 as an armed police force. Um, the British were very proud of the RIC when they set it up in Ireland. They used it as a model for policing in colonies like Australia and Canada, but there were problems baked into it from the very start. Um, so the RIC operated throughout Ireland, except in Dublin, where you had the DMP, which was an unarmed force. And I think one thing to know is that the RIC was huge. At one stage, Ireland had the same number of police officers as England, um, so more than 100,000 people served in it altogether. Most of the policemen who served would have been Catholic, they would have been Irish, and they would have lived and worked in barracks, which were spread out around the country. Um, a lot of the time, particularly before 1916, most of the work of the RIC was administrative, it was quite bureaucratic, so they would have carried out the census, they would have inspected food, they would have controlled the sale of alcohol in the area where they, where they worked. But when there were problems like the land wars and the Fenian rebellion in the 1800s, they were quite brutal in putting them down. So, and that is the biggest problem that people have with the RIC. They were the public face of enforcing British rule in Ireland. They weren't seen as being on the side of their fellow Irishmen. They were, they were seen as being on the wrong side of history at a time when people were fighting for Ireland's independence. Um, I found one study that was really good found, said that even while individual members of the force tended to be well respected in their local communities, their loyalty was always seen as being with the crown. So they were seen as Dublin Castle's men. And we saw this particularly from 1916 onwards. So as the police enforced British rule during the fight for independence and intensified from 1919 onwards, which is where the Black and Tans come into it. Yeah, Mary, can you get into that difference? Because the Black and Tans hashtag was trending. It is. It has become known as the Black and Tans event. Um, Tan gate. Yeah. What, <laughs> is there a difference between the Black and Tans and the RIC and the DMP? What are those differences if they're there? Well, How would a historian look at it? Well, the Black and Tans obviously uh, don't come into the story until January 1920, um, uh, when uh, the uh, there is uh, advertisements in the newspapers join the RIC, um, and they most of the Black and Tans about um, 78, 79 percent of them, I think, were were English born, working class, Protestant, mostly demobbed soldiers, uh, not the criminal classes that. Everyone says they were, you know, uh, there's this whole mythology around that the, the prisons of England were emptied out and, and uh, into the black and tans. They weren't. They were mostly just ordinary men who many of whom had served on in the First World War. So that was their skill set. They, they, they were soldiers. They were trained soldiers. They weren't tested 
physically or psychologically as to their suitability. Now, the, the RIC had always been a very well-trained force. Um, the Black and Tans got a couple of weeks training and were then uh, deployed around the country into uh, barracks with the RIC. So they are part, they are coexisting with the RIC. They are in the RIC. Um, they were, you know, that's how they're employed. Um, they're, they're, the name comes from, and, and, and people were wondering about that, where the name came from, was their uniform. There weren't enough complete RIC uniforms going around. So they wear um, khaki and uh, uh, black. They're very much part of the policy of reprisal that was conducted as the war intensified. Uh, a lot of the RIC had withdrawn from isolated barracks and they're now most mainly based in towns and cities around the country. So large swathes of the countryside are effectively not being policed uh, by the state. Um, so the black and tans are, are basically to uh, intensify taking the war to the IRA. Um, from 1916, you do see a lot of men in the RIC resigning, you know, a lot of them retiring because of age, uh, but also some of them resigning because they're uncomfortable with continuing the type of policing that they would be continuing. They may have been conflicted in their political ideology. And particularly from 1919 on, you have terrible problems recruitment in recruitment terms in Ireland, because really the IRA and Common Amon, and Common Amon really carry this, uh, start a policy of boycott, uh, of um, exclusion, of, you know, you don't, don't go dating an RIC man. And, and unfortunately, a lot of girls were attacked by the RI, uh, IRA for that, you know, for company keeping. Uh, shops don't serve them, um, don't speak to them, don't sit beside them. People wouldn't sit beside them in mass. Wouldn't sit yeah. beside them in mass and things like that. So it, 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 it goes from being a fairly solid, good job to have to being something you really don't want to be engaged with. Uh, and so the the uh, RIC are not really in a position to carry the war um, to the IRA at this stage. So there was a necessity for recruitment and recruitment then, I suppose, of what would be considered more loyal figures. Um, Mary, can you explain the difference between the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries? Well, the auxiliaries were recruited later on and they're on higher pay um, and they are kind of they're an auxiliary to the RIC and um, still part of the RIC, um, but much more independent in, in terms of their operations where, they, you know, they're recognisable with their tam shanters, aren't they? They're, um, and uh, I think people regarded them as a little bit more ferocious. Uh, than even the black and tans. Yeah, well, well, fighting for yeah, absolutely yeah. far more probably. Uh, they're, they're explicitly kind of shock troops. They're nearly all uh, experienced soldiers. I mean, you can be an ex-soldier at twenty-one, not very experienced, and become, become a tan. But most auxiliaries uh, had 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 older and serious A lot of them yeah. because they were called ironically cadets, but a lot of them had 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 uh, were officers. But they were officers who come through the ranks. So these these were people who had a lot of experience of soldiering or, or, or of military service and they did have a, a brief uh, to be uh, explicitly almost if you like a, 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 you'd call it in some, some respects to behave like 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 uh, uh, terrorists almost and terrorise local things they were much more mobile than, they, yeah. mobile than the RIC yeah. uh, they, they they in some ways were much more effective with the exception obviously of, the, of Kilmichael uh, where, where, where 17 uh, were were, uh, were killed by, by Tom Barry's flying column uh, and um, but they were the they were the in a sense the most 
if the state was going to be brutal in response to the IRA, the auxiliaries rather than the TANs were, 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 were in tactical terms a, a better force to do it. And what year did we see them come in? We, we saw them come in in, in in the late spring of 1920. Yeah. And I, I, I think they were more hated. Um, well, and with good reason. For, but, and with good reason, absolutely, yeah. yeah. At the time, so if we are talking about um, 1920 on, can you differentiate the activities of the RIC from the, the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries? So the RIC had existed for 86 years when the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries were added to their ranks for the final two years of their existence. And this obviously fundamentally changed the makeup of them. Um, there were differences in terms of the people, in the forces and what they were tasked with. But I think what's important is that these may not necessarily have been obvious or they may not have mattered to people on the ground. Um, the uniforms may have been different, but they were all seen as being loyal to the Crown, as representing British rule in Ireland and doing what they could to stop um, Ireland from gaining independence. So it was the auxiliaries and the RIC together who carried out the massacre at Croke Park on Bloody Sunday in November 1920, for example, um, which resulted in over a dozen civilian deaths. Um, RIC members were the ones who shot dead Thomas McCurtain, who was the Lord Mayor of Cork in January 1920. They were often reacting to the deaths of other police officers, so at times it was disproportionate and also quite brutal. Well, to some extent, can I just say, I, I think until January 1920, uh, the, the, the Inspector General of the RIC was very much against importing temporary yeah. imports. He, mm-hmm. he was an ex, an ex British general. He, he said the pro- you know he said the problem with soldiers is they're not policemen, they're not trained as policemen. There's another generic problem with young soldiers, which is that if you put them in contact with the civil population, they tend to abuse them, they tend to rob if they're searching houses. They're just a pain in the arse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he would have said that professionally, and he and he, oh, he was pushed out for doing so. He also he also said ultimately, plain Sinn Fein is a composite movement. They're not all extreme. Republican killers and we have to move towards some accommodation with them. So there's a big change in the leadership of the RIC at the beginning of 1920 a man has put in a cipher named Smith from Belfast and the message goes out that that, uh, particularly to these new recruits that you are to be hard on the feckless Irish and so on. And that's a big shift. Mm-hmm. And it's a change in the in sense in the relation, the traditional relationship between the general public, I would say, and mm-hmm. from on high and 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 uh, and the police. So that's intensified with the appointment of a man called Tudor as police advisor in the spring of 1920, who's a, an art, retired artillery general. And he basically encourages, almost demands, uh, that the RIC take a more aggressive role, in a sense, a paramilitary role, which is not really, despite their structure, what they had been about. I, I, have, I have to confess or to proudly say I have bottle green RIC blood, right? I'm sure lots of people listening do. Probably more people are related uh, to RIC men than are related to activists, the IRA. I have lots of IRA blood as well, and I have Gartha blood. But the, the reality, I was reading a document recently written by Dan Breen in the early 1940s. He, he claimed, he reckoned there weren't more than 500 to 1,000 people who actually fought for Ireland. And Liam Tobin, the other side of the Civil War, quite agrees with them. Now, I think that's an understatement. What were the differences between the DMP and the RIC? Well, the DMP were unarmed. Um, now, they did have the intelligence division that did uh, do a lot of uh, spying on the, say, prior to 1916 on the plotters of the uh, Easter Rising. And you can see those those archives are also online with the National Archives who released them, I think, a day um, 
uh, during on the run up to 2016, which was very interesting. It's sort of to see in real time what the DMP were reporting back or those members of the intelligence division were reporting back of meetings in Tom Clark's shops and seeing Countess Markovic walking down the street towards uh, a meeting and all this sort of thing. Um, and the G division particularly are the ones that are loathed for pointing out the signatories of the proclamations in, in, or the proclamation in Richmond Barracks when the... Um, uh, revolutionaries were all marched off there after the Easter Rising. But basically the DMP were withdrawn to barracks um, during the 1916 Rising and it was the British military that fought on the streets uh, against the rebels. And the DMP itself doesn't really play a huge role. Well, except getting killed. The, the, the unarmed policeman in Guard of the Godwin Castle is shot dead quite yeah. gratuitously. Yeah. The HIF, uh, the, the constable in, in, in Stephen it's Green, is really shot dead when he could easily. They could have knocked him out. They could yeah. have tied him up. In terms of who joined the DMP and the RIC pre-1920, what was their characteristics? Did they have any commonalities? We know that a lot of times... These, these weren't jobs that people necessarily aspired to, but they were seen as uh, stable jobs. They gave people standing in the community, they gave them a wage, they gave them a pension. Um, yeah. So a, a large number... prevented of, huge, more immigration. More, it, yeah. it was an alternative to emigration as well. Um, we know a large number of um, recruits came from um, Munster and Connacht in particular. So these are people who may have been farmers or labourers instead, and then saw this as an alternative, as a way to to make money, like to, to, to have a, a different kind of life. Um, so there was kind of... A, uh, more of a rural, I think, uh, makeup of the of the the force than you might. Yeah, you know, same for Dublin. But but let's be this is this is a this was a good job. It mm-hmm. wasn't a a default job. Uh, again, my great grandfather probably an example. If you're the second son or yeah. the, one of the junior sons in a farming family, they're nearly all of farming stock. Mm-hmm. But they're of respectable farming stock. They're not the poorest of the poor or anything like it. They have a certain standard of literacy and so on that they have to achieve. They have to get a letter from the local a recommendation from the local sergeant or inspector. So they are, in a sense, of a, you wouldn't say that they're anything like the poorest of the poor. Mm. And I don't think it's a stark choice between joining the RRC and emigration. I think the kind of people who joined, joined it because they saw it as a, as a respectable profession in which, particularly for Catholics, you could actually incrementally get on a bit. Mm-hmm. And also, like so many Irish people, joined the British Civil Service and worked in the colonial service. Absolutely. You know, those are the complications of our history. Can we fast forward to present day and what has gone down over the, the last couple of weeks? Um, we heard um, there about Dermot Ferriter's statement that the expert advisory group um, hadn't envisioned a, a state commemoration like what was planned for in Dublin Castle. Union, you were on the expert advisory group. Can you just give us a rundown of what was its role in this planning of the decade of centenaries uh, in general rather than two, the two, two, Well, two things. I'm not here to speak for the group. I'm a member of it. I'm happy to do it in a personal capacity, but it's for Morris Manning, the chairman, to speak about the group. Um, the, the expert advisory group is to advise. It's not to ordain. It's not to prescribe. And it's not to approve. Right. It's to make recommendations. And in relation to my own view of the of the state thing, I was surprised that the the the, the now aborted commemoration took the shape that it did uh, in in light of the kind of sensitivities that, that we, we were all aware of and have touched on. In terms of the role of the EAG, what what was the process? What did you, when you were sitting down before 2012 to talk about this uh, long period of, of commemorations, what, how did it how did it work? 
Uh, well, I, it's a, it, over time, we, 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 amongst ourselves, in a sense, drew up a, a list list of, of, of events and issues that, that we thought would probably become part of the palette of commemorations over the period, right? Uh, we didn't take a view of, of uh, uh, at the outset, of, of who should do what or anything like that. Uh, but we did, we did, uh, it was certainly, I think, the, the advisory group, and certainly, if I could speak for the state, although I'm not a, a member of the government, I, I think the state was extremely anxious to avoid trouble. I think the focus was particularly on 1916, and once you get over 1916, until we get to the four courts or to Ballyseedy and Kerry, maybe there won't be anything too contentious. So in a sense, there was, a, at the, from, the, from the government's point of view, and you could see why they're politicians, uh, uh, not, not getting over 2016 without big rounds. And with with ec with varieties of inclusivity to include, uh, you know, to take account of present day politics of, of the present day issues in Northern Ireland, uh, I think was would think was would, that would, the state's priority was to get over it, uh, without appearing to deny the physical tradition of physical force nationalism, which suddenly flowers in 1916, uh, but at the same time uh, uh, to be respectful of of in a sense anybody who wanted to commemorate anything. Um. That obviously hasn't gone well this week, or Mary, or, or for the past fortnight. Are we in for this over the next three years? There's another three years to go in, in terms of this decade of centenary programme um, that the government has put in place. I I don't, I hope not, and I, I, I don't think so. I think the expert advisory group have done an excellent job to date. And I actually looked at the document that you prepared and and the uh, recommendations on the RIC DMP came under other recommendations, not the very uh, small number, actually, of state commemorations that were recommended by the expert advisory group. Um, I think the model coming up to 2016, which helped stave off probably trouble, which was a local, regional, yeah. consultative based model. I was at several of the consultative uh, meetings, particularly around, you know, the inclusion of women uh, and coming on and the women's stories, but also the suffrage women uh, between 2012 and, and 2016. That seems to have fallen into abeyance and there doesn't seem to be as much consult consultation uh, you know, more broadly than uh, the EAG and the all-party uh, Oireachtas Committee on Commemoration. Um, and I think that's that's a pity, and I think that's a misstep by the government, because I think uh, if you have those meetings beforehand, you probably tease out a lot of the uh, problems that came up when there was this just blanket announcement that there was going to be a commemoration on January the 17th in Dublin Castle, which is a bit ironic because Dublin Castle, again, was always the headquarters of the, the authorities who were tasked with putting down revolutions and rebellions and things like that. I think going back to that, now the government actually did get a bit of a kicking in 2016 when it brought out that first video. Uh, do you remember that? Yeah, the yeah. promo video for 2016, yeah. which had Bono and Bob Geldof and beautiful Cliffs of Moher and things like that, but nothing about revolutionaries. And um, uh, and it, uh, it, it went back to the drawing board and, uh, you know, went back to that consultative model and things worked well for the most part in 2016. Um, there were, uh, you know, there were controversies. There was a necrology wall in Glasnevin. Um, you know, people were very exercised about that, putting the names of all the dead uh, of 1916 on the wall, including British soldiers. Um, but we, you know, we got beyond that because it was done with a lot of How did that work out in the end? What was the result? Well, you know, I think it, it's there. 
it happened. Um, it was attacked once or twice, I think, mm, graffiti or paint thrown yeah. on it. But it's still there. And for the most part, people have kind of settled into having it there. Um, and well, I think we have to care about what we mean by people, because if I mean, particularly with these wretched social media things, I don't quite <laughs> understand. If I start Twittering or whatever, uh, usually under the name of Patrick Pierce or, or the red, the red doctor or something. Yes. Um, how representative uh, is, I know we can debate this, how representative yeah. is social media of wider, of wider discontent? I don't think it can always be seen as to be, you know, entirely representative of a population, but obviously be, that is not the role of, of social media. But I think it's more that it gives you an indication of the conversations that are happening. I would never say that, you know, there was a... a it gives you the conversations that are happening on social media. Yeah. Well, oftentimes people bring the conversations on social media into real life and in real life onto social media. I think particularly in a small country like Ireland, it's it's more um, that these conversations are happening in multiple mm. spaces and multiple places. And you can see that happening. And social media can also be very useful about informing. Um, and there was a lot of discussion between historians who are on who are active on social media um, about this. Uh, that other that people who are not historians were following and were saying, oh, good, I, I've learned a lot on this. And, you know, it's interesting to see that historians are disagreeing or debating or uh, having these conversations. Uh, that's not to dismiss the fact that the hashtag black and tans thing also led to lots of hysteria uh, and, and, and misinformation of that. like my granddad fought the tans and what are you doing? Uh, and I thought Waterford whispers very captured it very much when they said, you know, there's this headline, 97 um, percent of Irish men will claim that their uh, grandfather was in this photograph of 22 men of the uh, <laughs> Waterford Foreign Column or, or the Waterford I Old IRA. Um, so, you know, social media can amplify and can exaggerate, but it also brings to uh, public consciousness um, issues that are exercising a large group of people out there. That mm -hmm. has been one of the questions. If we do have this conversation, we have to respect all traditions and all people and do, do the RIC and the DMP fit into that? Maybe tradition is the wrong word, but do they fit into that narrative that these are the things that do have to be respected if we are having these conversations? Well, I think we have to have these conversations. There's no getting away from it. This is part of our history. This is part of the complications and nuances, uh, traumas, uh, you know, of our histories. Um, and we, you know, the the takes the hot takes that are coming from politicians, both from in the Republic and in Northern Ireland about how this will, uh, you know, derail a united Ireland. Well, you know, is is the conversation about a united Ireland any closer because of Brexit or because of other things than it was 10 years ago? It may or may not be, depending on who you're talking to. But for somebody, you know, for some of the Ulster unionists to say, oh, well, you know, this shows that the Republic is a cold house for unionists still, is them... Uh, being a bit disingenuous because this is a conversation um, that is that is happening here about our histories, about the, the very horrible things that did happen, about what the Black and Tans did, about how we need to look at the RIC and the Black and Tans and the auxiliaries, about how we need to look back over 100 years, which isn't a very long time in history, because we're talking about the formation of both uh, states in, on the island of this Ireland. And yes, we have to have these complicated conversations. Uh, we need to have them sensibly. 
we need to be able to listen to each other. We, it doesn't mean we have to accept everybody. So there's no hierarchy of victims or winners or losers or hierarchy of what's more important or not. It's about understanding that this is messy and complicated and new and needs to be looked at with nuance uh, and, you know, not hashtags. And that's where I would agree where social media really does flatten out the conversation sometimes. Um, and where the politicians now are kind of inserting themselves to to... to Take a, a, you know, pot shots at each other. Mm. Can I can I just come yeah, in there? Yeah. I agree completely. I think um, also, for example, uh, people in the name of the IRA committed appalling, oh, yeah. did appalling things. Uh, but the the the, the there, there's all sorts of uh, issues and areas and and uh, where where I'm sorry, this is a terrible cliche, but not everybody's going to agree. Uh, on 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 what on what on what was noble, on what was justified, what wasn't justified. Uh, but I think we, if we all agree in the proposition that that different people and communities and even different states are entitled, in a sense, to commemorate the past and to explore it as 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 they as they as their communities feel fit. I think that's as far as we can go. And I think when we get to the Civil War, I am it drives me mad. There's a magic number uh, called 77, which is always brought out as the number of uh, Republicans uh, uh, executed uh, by the pro-treaty side, what becomes the free state uh, during the Civil War. Nobody has ever counted the number of people inverted commas, executed uh, by anti-treaty Republicans uh, during the truce and, truce and during the Civil War. But, but we, if, if we're going to look at the 77, then we should also be looking at anti-treaty yes. conduct during the Civil War. And not only against burning big houses, there's a fixation with burning, the burning of big houses. I'm more interested, for example, the burning of small houses in the War of Independence, and I'm more interested in, in, the, in the conduct of all the forces hey, during the War of Independence Absolutely. and during the Civil War. I would agree with that, and particularly... I mean, my area of, of interest and in research is on women, women's contribution and women's experiences. And so I'm looking a lot at the very targeted, gendered and sexualized violence, uh, everything from, you know, hair cropping to, to sexual harassment to rape during this period in the War of Independence and Civil War. And while you can say it, both sides contributed to this, there isn't a 50-50 balance either. Um, uh, during the reprisals, the, the Crown forces did a lot of um, targeted gendered violence from beating up coming among women. Um, one particular woman down in, in Longford talked about having nine teeth beaten out of her head in one particular incident to hair cropping to, you know, um, obvious um, what they call them outrages committed. They use the term outrage, the term sexual harassment or abuse or rape isn't used, committed against women. But the IRA are also attacking women, uh, women for com company keeping or suspected uh, uh, passing intelligence to the RIC. Um, and so you see this sort of complications going on. There's there, there's no, nobody comes out of this um, cleanly um, and nobody comes out of any war. Cleanly, and and an awful, a lot of these histories are going to to come out. So when we talk about the controversy that you know happened this week about the RIC uh, and this commemoration, we have a lot more to go through in the next three four years um, that will be much more difficult. And I think we need, and the government needs, and uh, those of us who are professional historians and those who are interested and in, and. In, in, basically anyone who wants to have uh, an input into this, there needs to be a, a model whereby conversations can be had without this becoming 
a meltdown. Yeah. And, and yeah, looking basically. at this week, how will that happen? Obviously, this model is not the one to follow, but those conversations are even messier. The, those commemorations will be even more difficult than, than this one. Well, I think you have to go to the local and regional. Um, I think that helps a lot because people where things happen, like a, a lot of the commemoration this year will be in Cork because of the, the, the death of the, the two Lord Mayors and the burnings and all that sort of thing. Uh, and a lot of the activities were happening mainly in Munster during this period as well. Um, so perhaps, you know, going to the local and the regional and having more consultation, not just at the state level with the committees that are set up, that's very important as well, but also going and having consultations locally and regionally yeah, I mean, and funding, properly funding those. Back to the the reason why we're here, Christine, um, this event has been cancelled in, in the guise that it was set up and um, but deferred as a, a kind of overall, you know, the, the RIC and DMP will be commemorated in some way. Do we know what that will look like? We don't know yet. Um, the statement that was put out by Charlie Flanagan announcing the cancellation of the event, it said that they hoped to have something later on in the year, but there was nothing definitive there. Um, he has been so, the Department of Justice has been very strong on weighing in behind this event. So I think it is likely that something will happen. But I think as is clear from what we're talking about, there needs to be an awful lot more there will be an awful lot more consultation and discussion about what that will look like. Is this Has this conversation been a good thing in the end? Hot takes and all, Mary. <laughs> well, I don't know if the hot takes were, were, were too good, but I think it, it, it um, uh, I, somebody was saying, oh, yes, uh, I, I heard <coughs> on radio yesterday that somebody uh, texted into a show where they were talking about this, that they were 39 years old and had never heard of the Black and Tans, which I find a bit extraordinary because I think <laughs> everybody in Ireland must have heard. But then again, you know, you presume everybody knows the things you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of people now know about the RIC, the Black and Tans, the auxiliaries. Um, a lot of people were probably Googling um, all of these histories. Um, I think it, it it is no bad thing. That is the silver lining. It gets people engaged. But then again, I think here we're very engaged with our histories anyway. Uh, I think it proves there's a huge interest out there and huge opinion out there about our histories. Um, that opinion could is sometimes ill-informed, sometimes not informed by any research, sometimes from it's a gut level in um, knowledge and information. Um, you know, I think it hopefully will lead to more in-depth discovery of people's personal collections, people's familial connections, community connections. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of an eternal optimist. I see the good, maybe the silver linings in this. So I think, yes, in the end, it was a good thing. And can I just add fi finally a point on that? Uh, one of the in the last fifteen years or so, there's been an avalanche of releases. Thank God of, of historical material related to the Irish Revolution. The problem with it, uh, the pensions legislation material, particularly in the Bureau of Military History, it's fantastic, and I lobbied to get that released. But the problem with it is, it does put an emphasis on the on the on the subset of people who fought or who said they fought, right, on one side of the argument. And uh, I, I think the more that we go local. As well as as doc, this is, seems the uh, ironic for a historian. But the more that that local lore and local memory and local local rumor and local contrasting rumors, because there's hardly ever one rumor, there's hardly ever one account. There's several different. The more that the more the local is brought in, uh, uh, the better. Not to oversimplify, but 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 to uh, in a sense to add to the complexity, but also mm. to add context, because it's very hard to generalize at a national level. Chris, just to finish us off here, when did the RIC finish up? 
Well, when the new Irish state was formed, some of the systems that had existed were kept and kind of modified slightly. So like the court system, the civil service, but the RIC was abolished completely. And that was in 1922. Um, the DMP, the Dublin Metropolitan Police, was absorbed into um, on Garda Siakona. And this was because the RIC had become so despised as a, as a British colonial force. Um, you couldn't have a police force that was not trusted by the public to do its job and that had been boycotted by them. And really, most crucially, that was seen as operating in the interests of another country. Um, and in the end, only a tiny number of RIC policemen, I think was in the double digits, were actually allowed to join on Garda Siakona after the, the RIC was disbanded. Great. Thanks so much. Um, I think there's uh, will be loads of interest in where our own families came from. And I think, you know, Yunan, you've mentioned your your grandparents. Um, I've mentioned my great grandfather, who was a, an RIC man. Um, but if you want to know more about your own family's past, the National Military Archives are a really, really great place to start, as well as the census records, um, which have all been digitised or many of them have been digitised. And you can find them at militaryarchives.ie and census.nationalarchives.ie to take a look for yourself. Um, thanks so much to Christine, Eunan and Mary for coming in and explaining all of that to us. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Eunan, Christine and Mary for all their work on this episode. With the article, we're going to put up a number of resources and links to archives and other places that you can find out about your own family history. If you had um, men in your family in the IRA, if you had men in your family in the RIC or women in Cumann Amman. If you enjoyed this chat today and learned something, we have loads more for you. Check out our back catalogue where you'll find episodes on how Met Erin decides on weather warnings and how a US president gets impeached, both pretty timely. You'll also find an episode with some of our best bits from 2019. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you are enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to them. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.